I'm Carrie Adams, and you're listening to Carrie's Connoisseurs, coming to you from Solid Gold Podcasts. Here we talk to the movers and shakers, the drinkers, the dreamers, and all the people who make it happen in the liquor and luxury industries from around the world. Today in my studio, I've got a friend and colleague, Fiona MacDonald. I can't even start to tell you the contribution that Fiona's made to the South African wine industry. So we'll start with troublemaker, rebel rouser, <laughs> intellect, judge, um, taster. What do you do? Fee, welcome to Kerry's Connoisseurs. Thanks for agreeing to join me today. Thanks, Kerry. It's good to be on. What's your favorite thing to do in the industry? Drink wine. <laughs> yes. I know. And aside from that? Write about wine. Yeah. And whiskey. And whiskey. And whiskey. The reason that I've got you with me today, in fact, is, of course, because we're celebrating the life of a mutual friend and colleague, David Hughes, who died last week. Monday. And after, I think, quite a long period of frailty and ill health. But I'm not going to do all of that talking. I'm going to get you to do that talking because I think of all of us in the industry you were very close to Dave and his wife, Lorna, for many, many years, a good friend, more than a colleague. So let's just talk about him. Tell me about when you first met David Hughes. Wow. The first time I met Dave was when I was a, a news reporter on the Mercury in Durban. And Dave came up to do a tasting for the Niederberg auction. I was absolutely in awe. You know, I was taken my baby steps in wine and uh, I didn't know very much but I had heard about Dave Hughes because he was just kind of one of the preeminent personalities in in the industry the equivalent of someone meeting Beyonce for the first time and it, it, that's who he was to me <laughs> not like Dave was Beyonce but it was kind of that, that sort of status yeah, that caliber. Um, yeah I and, get you and he was you know he was just this this amazing guy but he was just so modest and so humble and so gentle and so sweet and he I mean you know Dave Dave never had any airs and graces about him despite all the the honors that he'd achieved and the people that he knew and the circles that he moved in internationally whether you were literally the street sweeper or you were the president of the country dave would have been always the same same. and fee how old were you how how long ago was that what's carrie we're going back to the 90s here early early 90s 91 92 thereabouts so it was yeah. a good 30 years ago. Well, just for everybody's edification, David Hughes was one of the pillars, really, I think, of the South African wine industry. He was a Zimbabwean, or a Rhodesian, as he liked to think of himself. <laughs> he was born He was a, born in a house near a gold mine, I think, from memory, to a family where he, he really revered his father. I can remember David telling me stories about his dad, who he revered and loved and respected. And you can lead us through his life from, because he went into the military, and I'm not sure how he got from the military into a brewery or a distillery, but I know, I remember him telling me that he did. I'm actually not even 100% certain of of quite how that happened. Um, No, I don't think anyone is. He spent time in the military, absolutely, and I I think at, at one point he was actually slated to go to Sandhurst Military College. I mean, this is just one of the many things. And then due to circumstances that, that didn't happen from what I recall. And and I'm not certain how he got his job, but he worked for African distillers um, up in Rhodesia, as it was then. And during his time there, spent time in Scotland and, and even in France. I mean, I remember him telling stories about 
being in Marseille uh, when the rum agricole would be shipped in from the West Indies. Oh, um, really? And ally to that is a, a little anecdote years later of, of him being on a plane flying to Cuba. And if memory serves me correctly, he was actually flying on his brother's passport because his brother had an Irish passport. And of course, in those days, South Africans couldn't fly to Cuba or you certainly, the government didn't want you to yeah. do so and you didn't want any, any official um, Cuban stamps in, in your passport. So he flew from the UK on his own passport to the States um, and then utilized his brother's passport to get into Cuba. But years later, once everything was a, a little bit more copacetic, he was on a flight somewhere. And you know, they on those little drop-down TVs, they were showing some in-flight entertainment. And he said, <laughs> to his absolute surprise, there was a video of him that had been taken somewhere talking about rum. But he said, I didn't know I could talk French so well. That obviously <laughs> dubbed his voice. So he'd done the interview, but he he all his words had been dubbed into into French. Oh, God. From African distillers, he ended up coming to South Africa in 1969 to your part of the world, uh, mm. Germiston, and um, helped set up something for One SFW. does wonder what magnet brought him in the direction of Germiston, but we'll what? forgive him for that for now. <laughs> he, he did start the Cape Wine Academy, didn't he? Correct. That was in 1979. Yeah, he was instrumental mm. in that. So he came to Johannesburg, and I think that he got involved. His first sort of involvement in the South African booze industry was really SFW, which later became Distel, yeah. really, didn't it? Yeah. And he was yeah. very instrumental in the making. I remember him telling me that he loved to mentor the winemakers. Mm. Because he felt that education was just such a, you know, no more. I always remember he taught me that little anecdote that I've applied my whole life. No more. And it's not N-O more. It's K-N-O-W more. Mm. So mm. David taught us all to know more. And that's one of yeah. my lasting memories. He came to, to Germiston and? all of the whole, I think the whole SFW thing happened because of his um, being identified by Ronnie Milk as someone who could, uh, you know, move on and and go places and he eventually moved out of production into um, more people and marketing and i know he had a stint in durban and i and i remember him telling me another anecdote about it being a time when sol kersner was still employed by one of the, the durban hotels and um, probably in arrears and uh, dave said to Mr. Kersner, I'm sorry, but we're going to cut you off. That's it. And it was <laughs> round about the time that the, Mr. Kersner was trying to set up Southern Sons, and if, if he'd been cut off, it would have taken those plans out at the knees. So Dave, Dave had all these little little nuggets of information that he just... Oh, no, he also had, you know, he was tiny. Do you remember? David was a tiny little man. He was a man of very, very slight structure, but he had bigger balls than anybody we ever knew on planet Earth. David was, I can imagine him having been an amazing soldier because he was so yeah. courageous and so brave. And he rushed in where, honestly, angels fear to tread. So I can imagine, I can imagine him telling Sol Kersner to, you know, what off. I can imagine him do that. <laughs> words, okay. words followed by off. Yeah. <laughs> Starting with fa and ending with fa. So he went from Derbs back to Cape Town, I think. And he got and married he in the meantime and had a daughter, didn't he? Yeah, and he was married when he came down to um, to South Africa um, mm. to the first Mrs. Hughes and uh, had a daughter. Yeah, it was you know you talk about the influence that people had on others' lives. I mean, one of one of the people he got to know 
when he first moved down to the Cape was um, Tony Mossop. And yes. it was through him that Tony Mossop developed a love of wine. And, you know, if it wasn't for Tony Mossop and his love of wine, we wouldn't have Miles Mossop. So all these little And we wouldn't strange... have half the port. We wouldn't have half the port that we've got in the country. Yeah. Yeah. Because Tony Mossop and David were Mr. Port Squared. I mean, yeah. I can remember yeah. many a drunken afternoon with those two boys on port yeah. in the rainy, misty Cape weather. They loved it. Yeah. So Porty did, Sherry did, he did loads of international judging. He wrote books. Correct. He, as we say, started the uh, Cape Wine Academy, um, mm. which, is, which has gone on to be an amazing asset to the South African industry. And he left, when he left SFW, I think, which was in Distar, I think I then reconnected with Dave because I went to live in England in the meantime. But I reconnected with Dave when he was quite involved with Diners Club. And he used to chair the Diners Club Winemaker of the Year judging panel. Mm. And they invited me to sit. He invited me to sit on that judging panel some 17, 18 years ago. Mm. And that's when I sort of reconnected with Dave Hughes. And I, I can mm. clearly remember, I think a lot of people question my chairmanship of, of judging panels, but it is completely and utterly dictated to by Dave Hughes. He was so, what's the word? He was so calm mm. and there was so little fuss and faff that surrounded mm. Dave's chairmanship of judging panels. And it was so sublimely and ultimately fair. Indeed. Do you agree? You know, if, if, if I think about Dave chairing panels, I mean, I'm going right back to the early 2000s when I took over at, at, at Wine Magazine. You know, Dave would come in and, and if he was chairing a panel, everything would just be superbly organized. You, you spoke about him being a soldier. And if there's one thing that I remember from our year when we walked the Camino together in 2004 was Dave's discipline. Dave always had like a like a standing opera, a standard operating procedure, SOP, the American military calls it. And Dave would have a standard operating procedure. When he arrived for a tasting, he would have his little apron and he would put his apron on and tie it in the front and, and he would kick his shoes off under the table. He liked to taste barefoot. Um, I don't know whether he did that in the in the in the UK when he was at yes. Dunsfold. But he, he would always in his in his little his little bag that he brought along with him, his little soft briefcase, he, he always had a thermometer. <laughs> And he would put a thermometer into the glasses to see whether they yes. were at, at optimum temperature. I've, I've never known anyone else in, in all my years of judging, and that's both locally and abroad, decanter, Concord, Montreal, IWC, IWSC. I've never seen anybody else ever do that. And he would monitor how the temperature was. He did. And he would send stuff back if it was too warm, if you remember. Yeah, yeah, but there was, yeah. there was never any pomp and ceremony or fuss and palaver with, no. Dave, with no. Dave Hughes. He was, what you saw was honestly what you got. There was nothing yeah. malicious or vindictive or ugly or scandalous about Dave Hughes. He was just a gorgeous guy, wasn't he? He was. He was, he was a real beautiful soul. I mean, he was, he was very gentle in his, in his dealings with all people from, from all walks of life. Um, and he was his funny. His faith was very important to him. He, he was a great very funny. Sense of humor. And, and this, the, the next anecdote... Um, Dan Nichols said to me, asked me yesterday, he said he's never encountered anyone who's got a bad word to say about Dave. And I said, yeah, that's certainly true. But I was thinking about it last night. And I, and I know that Erica Platter certainly bore him a little bit of malice because <laughs> in, um, in the days when subsequently Dave's 
first marriage ending and before he'd met Lorna, Dave was very much a confirmed bachelor for oh, 10, 15, if not more years. And um, he would socialize with uh, the platters and the webs and so forth. And I remember there was there was one story he told me about inviting John and Erica Platter around to his flat in Andringa Street for a curry. Because as you know, Erica loves a good curry. I mean, she's authored books about the damn things. And she was so impressed that this confirmed bachelor had made her a curry that was really impressive. And she said, this is so tasty. What blend of spices did you use? And, you know, did you play with the dunya? Is How much ginger did you use? And Dave's just straight, giving her as much string as she'd like. He's just absolutely wheeling her along. And at the end of the evening, he said, you know, Erica, I've, I've, I'm going to tell you my secret to this perfect curry. And he hauls out a little box of Cartwright's curry powder, which is like <laughs> as bare bones basic as you as you can get. Apparently, Erica was spitting and fuming. And then there was, there was someone's birthday at Mama Roma's in Stellenbosch where he hatched up a plan to put nitrous oxide. I think it was also, again, the platters were involved. It was someone's significant birthday. And they put nitrous oxide through the aircon. Apparently, it was the most hilarious party that they've ever had. <laughs> Everybody was laughing their heads off. Let's hope he gets you. <laughs> Just for anyone who doesn't know. <laughs> no, he was fun. And he had a... I think he changed it every day. One of those very old-fashioned mm. answering machines on yeah. his telephone. Yeah. So if you phoned Dave Hughes and he didn't answer, there was always a message of the day. Mm. I mean, where did that come from? I don't know where it came from, but it was it was certainly something he did every single day. When you know, I was talking about the rigor and the discipline, when, when on the Camino he, yes. he had a, a way of getting up in the morning and he'd shower and get all his kit ready. And when we finished walking of an afternoon, he'd go and shower and change and wash his clothes. And then he would sit outside and he would polish his boots, you know, his marching boots, because he said, your boots are going to get you from point A to point B. So you take care of them. And that was, that was his military training. But um, he had this rigor where he would get up, honestly, at like half past three, four o'clock in the morning, every morning. It used to drive Lorna nuts because he, he very kindly would bring her a cup of tea. He's like, he's up, so she must like now have a cup of tea. It was a very sweet gesture, but, you know, she didn't necessarily want to wake up at five o'clock either. Um, but he would wake up at four and he would go through to his office and he would um, do a, a set of exercises. To keep. He was very keen on keeping fit. He was always a very, very fit man, you know, ran – I know he had his comrades' green number, so that's more than ten comrades. Yes, he did, he did. Ultra, the two oceans ultra marathon and a, and a host of other races. You talk to people in the running fraternity, and they they all knew Dave. Um, but he would do his exercises, and then he would do his Catholic devotions. He would do his readings and his prayers. Go through, make Lorna a cup of uh, cup of tea. He would record. He would he would invariably line up whatever the date was, and he would he would give you a little bit of history about what happened in this year and yes. you know sixteen forty nine and. And it's and then in seventeen twenty four this happened and 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 it's a very happy birthday to Alan Mullins or you know yeah. Carrie Adams or whoever. Um, yeah. And he he'd give you a little a little synopsis and 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 by the time you you know you you're still sitting waiting to say how's it Dave it's Fiona here I, I just need to get hold of you to talk about X Y Z. Um, you, you'd almost completely lost your train of thought because you'd been entertained for at least two if not three minutes. Yeah, he was brilliant. Fee, when did he meet Lorna? I know that Lorna was a great mate of yours. I didn't know Lorna particularly well, but I do remember when David married her. And I think that they had 
an incredibly happy time together for many years, but there was quite a big age difference between him and Lorna. It was almost exactly 20 years because Dave, Lorna and myself are all Geminis and we're all within three weeks of each other. So I'm on the 24th okay. of May, Lorna was the 29th and Dave was the 12th of June. So there were a lot of personalities involved when we got together. Um, yeah. they must have met... <laughs> Six of you, to say the least, yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> He must have met Lorna around about the, the late 90s, 98 or 99, um, at the Devon Valley Hotel. Um, yes. David Nathan Maester takes credit for introducing them over a particularly um, bibulous evening at, shall we say, at, at his home one night. Um, and they just they just headed off and, uh, yeah, got married in early 2000. I think it was in about April 2000. Um, no, yes. 2001. And I actually got to know Lorna through Dave. And yeah, she was a, a really, really good friend of mine and, and someone I cared for very, very deeply. Yes, and she very sadly, very sadly also passed away last year in a car yeah. accident. Car accident, yeah. I think that might and have been the catalyst that tipped Dave over the edge. Um, he was very exactly. frail last year. Yeah. And the last time yeah. I saw him, I'm trying to think the last time I saw David, I actually think it was before COVID, Fee. Wow. I invited him to a diners club function because I took over his role at diners club and I invited him to a function and we had to get him there especially, especially it was hard and he was very frail, but he was loved and, and funny to the last day that I ever saw him. And I don't, I think he was very, very sick and frail last year. I didn't see him for David. It's a happy release. I'm happy for him. Absolutely. I think everybody who, who, who knew him and, and had seen him in the last year or two will will be like, sure, you know, Dave's finally out of out of his pain. He wasn't particularly sick towards the end. He just he just kind of in his in his typical quiet fashion, you know, he, he, he was just slipped to away and, and breathed his last on, on Monday evening without without making oh, too please much of God, a God, we can all do that with a nice glass yeah. of Chardonnay. I hope he had something gorgeous in his glass when he when he took his last sip. Did he? It, it was arranged. When when I saw him and, and Sue, Sue Wardrop and myself went round on on Monday and, and one of the concerns we had was that Dave needed a glass of wine with his evening meal because that was... You that should was... have phoned me. I'd have sent you a bottle of Petrus or something. He honestly did deserve it. He, he just did so much for all of us, didn't he? Yeah. A lot of people don't really appreciate what he did for the South African industry at a time when our flag wasn't flying very high in international circles. Yes, South African wine was available, but, you know, particularly in the UK market where people expressed their, their disaffection for the apartheid government by not buying South African wine. Dave was at the International Wine and Spirits Competition and, and that was always chaired by a, a an international personality, so be it Madame de Lenkesang, Baroness uh, Rothschild, uh, Robert Mondavi, um, mm. people of that Some ilk. Big Dave, knew Dave knew them yeah. on, on first name terms. I mean, he he, he used to talk about uh, Marchese Antonori coming. A, he invited them out. They would come out to South Africa, and he invited Marchese Antonori out. And he remembers someone. Uh, it might have been the Mossop family teaching Antonori's kids to surf on, on Strand Beach, you know, that they got to experience a little bit of <laughs> South a African. a few bottles of nice Barolo or something, it could have been arranged. At least, yeah. <laughs> no, he was. I think nobody better than you to remember him and remind us 
of the many, many things that he did do for the industry. And more than that, just the levity that he brought. He brought mm. enough seriousness to give the, the industry a big injection of Hughes' knowledge, which mm -hmm. we all needed. But there was always this lovely lightness of being about Dave Hughes that I loved. We laughed a lot. Um, we made each other laugh. And I, I didn't have the privilege of working with him enough. I did have the privilege of working with him sometimes. So I'll remember him always for those happy things and the wonderful knowledge that he brought to me. Mm. I think you should write a book about your life and times, and Dave Hughes would be a very, very big part of that. He loved oh, you. Okay. I know that he was terribly, terribly fond of you. Both he and Lorna were very fond of you, which is why yeah. I asked you to be my guest today. When they celebrated their, because they did a joint celebration of their big O birthdays, when Lorna turned 50 and Dave turned 17, it was it was a very small, intimate dinner at, at the house in, in Devon Valley with, you know, 15 dogs around. And Dave went, he stood up and he, he went around the table and he said to, you know, Dampy, you've been a big part of, of my life and I appreciate working with you and Benny Howard and all the people who were there. And someone actually said, but you haven't said anything about Fiona. And she said, he said, well, Fiona doesn't need anything said about her. She's family. And, you know, they say that the friends are the family that you choose. And, and I, I truly count myself blessed and my life enriched by, by having been taken into, into the fold so, so warmly and so generously by, by both Dave and Lorna. 100%. Fee, to sort of round it all up and pull the drawstring on the toilet bag, what's happening to all Lorna's dogs is Jessie is the son looking after all of them because yeah. they ran, she ran a home for homeless dogs as she would have done. Yeah. Um, she just also had a heart of complete and utter gold, didn't yeah. she? Yeah. And, and you know, I think, I think the reason they've got, they had so many dogs is, um, is because Dave was a soft touch because Lorna would take in the mommy dogs and the puppies and bottle feed the puppies and then adopt the puppies out. And, and then Dave would say, yeah, but mommy dog's been here for two months now and you can't send her to the welfare. You can't put her in a kennel. She's part of our pack. And so, you know, I mean, I think they've got five mommy dogs there with the Riley and, <laughs> and, and a whole host of them. And, and Dave was just a, he was a soft touch. And, and his oh. office had, um, had a bed because Dave was also famous for taking little naps. Um, yes. and he had a bed and, and that bed was invariably occupied by at least three, if not four or five dogs. <laughs> It's actually quite a good thing for all of us. That's a leaf to take out of David's book, for each of us to put a bed in our home office. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. We could take a nap sort of in between podcasts, in between judging. We could just go and have a nap. He wasn't so stupid after all. He would lie down on the floor under under a, under a table. <laughs> he really was not fussy. And, and the other thing, Carrie, is I'm sure you remember this, but every every dinner he went to, he would always take the, the bottles home with him and he would soak off the labels and he would meticulously keep those labels. He was the vinitulous yeah. is, the, is the correct term. I wonder where that collection of labels is, to be honest, they're because in, it was… in file cabinets. They're in file cabinets and meticulously the date of the event, the description of the event, who was there, and then a, a, a little… He also used… Remember he used to do a little dab? He used to do a yeah. dab on the, on the paper with for the colour. Um, all of that's then in a file, meticulously kept. I don't have that rigour. Maybe we must give that to Mr. Rupert. He'll put it in a museum somewhere. It must be filled with a million labels. Do you know that last my last story about Dave, 
I remember hearing when I was in, in England and learning and studying and doing my stuff that Dave Hughes, who was very instrumental in the launch of Lieberstein wine mm. in South Africa, yeah, I think in one particular year, long before you and I were anywhere near the wine industry, I think it was 19, well, I don't know, 70 or 78 or something like that, Lieberstein, that was really Dave Hughes's baby, sold 30 million litres. It, at the time, it was the single biggest selling wine in bottle in the world. Yeah. He thought big, as tiny as he was, he thought big and he did stuff that did sort of get out into the world and sent, he sang South Africa from the rooftops. Yeah. So yeah. Zimbabwe's loss was definitely our gain. Yeah. And I think that his death is now our loss. Thank you so, so much. I mean, it, I can't think of anybody better to have spoken to and remembered David as happily as we have. Today, I want everybody this evening to raise a glass to Dave Hughes in the whole country and send him on his way. I hope he's landed in a cloud not full of Lieberstein necessarily, because I don't think any of us want a Lieberstein cloud, but maybe something, maybe something nice, maybe a nice um, tawny port or... A whiskey. He was a whiskey distiller as well. He could make whiskey yeah. and he could make brandy. And so rum. any of the above. And vodka. Anything. Loved his gin. Loved his gin. So everybody in South Africa, raise your glasses this evening to David Hughes and Lorna Hughes, who jointly and severally added to every single one of our lives in some form or fashion in the, in the little industry. Fee, thank you so, so much. Lots of love to you. We take two. Definitely. Thanks, Carrie. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.